Welcome to Rebuilding. This podcast is designed to help the church rebuild its walls one person at a time. For more information, check us out at www.piercepoint.org. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, Proverbs chapter 15, verse 33, and James chapter 4, verse 6 are all what we're going to cover. These are the words of God. They'll be on the screen if you can't jump there quick enough. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. We all know this. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs 15, 33. The fear of the Lord is the instruction for wisdom. And before honor comes humility. And last but not least, James chapter 4, verse 6, but he gives a greater grace, God. Therefore it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Today we're going to explore the concepts of pride and humility, and we're going to do that all within the context of a true milestone or a true turning point in the life of King David. One, mind you, that spanned some 40 years of his life, so this is, this is quite a big deal. In keeping with our opening verses, we're going to examine... Uh, the difference between a fool, or according to what James says, the proud, and the one who is or becomes humble. Now, uh, before we jump into this, I want to quickly dis- uh, make the distinction between the difference of knowledge and wisdom. Uh, knowledge, obviously, is information, but wisdom is how you use that information. There is conventional wisdom in this life. There is knowledge that we gain because we went to school or whatever it might be, and we gained that knowledge. And then there is conventional wisdom, right? And so we apply that in our lives. It just makes sense. You went to school, you learned how to be an engineer, you got the knowledge, and then you, apply, then you have conventional wisdom when you learn how that knowledge applies inside of your life. In, we can't confuse that wisdom with spiritual wisdom. Why? Because you can have all the knowledge and all the wisdom in the world of the world, but if you don't have spiritual knowledge and then how to apply spiritual knowledge, aka wisdom according to the Bible, then it doesn't do you any good. I've met a lot of wise people in life, right, for just life's sake, but um, it's rarer to find people who are wise spiritually. So the difference between wisdom and the difference between knowledge, knowledge is information. Wisdom is applied information. There is also a distinction between uh, basic knowledge and wisdom and spiritual knowledge and wisdom. So first, uh, what I want to do before we jump into the story of David and, and get really neck deep in the craziest story we've ever heard. Uh, I'd like to recap a bit from last week, and I want to share two very important points that I wasn't able to cover in our time. A man by the name of Daniel J. Estes, he's got a good last name, right, Barney? Anyway, Daniel J. Estes in Handbook on the Wisdom Books and Psalms writes this. He said, the Proverbs begin with an explicit purpose statement in chapter 1, verses 2 through 6. Now, we covered this last week. We're all good. Uh, The central verb in this complex section is the verb hear, okay, what it means to hear. Uh, Subsidiary to uh, to that idea are four purposes for hearing. 
Uh, here's what Daniel J. Estes says. Number one is to know wisdom so that you can actually, you, you just know it. Number two, to understand wisdom sayings. That's how we're able to discern whether or not something is truly wise in this life. Number three, to subscribe to moral insight. It's good that we have knowledge or no knowledge. It's good that we can discern what is knowable, but it's another thing altogether if we are able to uh, subscribe to the moral insights that they provide. And then the fourth one is to move towards maturity, which we covered a lot last week. In sum, the purpose of Proverbs, Daniel J. Estes goes on to say, is, the challenge, is to challenge the reader to attain God's wisdom, which is to appropriate his design for life. And that's the important thing. God's design for life. In specific terms, it endeavors to transform immature people into wise people. Who wants that transformation? Immature people to wise people. That's what we should want. As we learned last week, this maturing process is so that we can rule and reign as God intended. Hey, Lauren, good to see you. That's my cousin. Anyway, so good to see you. Thank you for coming. Um, for the purpose of reflecting God's glory into the world. And so now we see our, um, as Daniel J. Estes says, that is God's design for us in our life. We also learned that we shouldn't simply discount what the world has to say, uh, what they propose to be wisdom. Because there's a lot of good things, I think, in, in what the world has to say. Instead, Proverbs helps us to discern what is of God and what is not. Okay? Now, if you didn't catch the message last week, you need to absolutely give your time to it. Because I carried uh, on about a lot of very important ideas. This is how Solomon handled the wisdom of the ancient Near East. He heard a saying, he heard an idea, and he looked at it through the lens of the fear of the Lord. Right, And so he could discern whether or not something was true wisdom. As Christians, we are to fear the Lord so that we can be trained to see true wisdom all around us. And it is, in fact, all around us. All the while, we have to keep in mind that God's word is the only true measure by which to prove accuracy of any wisdom we use to build our lives on. The Bible is our benchmark. Amen? Okay, let's get everybody to wake up. Take a drink of cold water, whatever you need. But the Bible is the benchmark by which we are able to prove anything inside of our life. Amen? Okay. Uh, this is like using a square or a level to ensure accuracy if you're building a house. Can you make something level without using a level? Sure you can. Sure you can. Not with any consistency. <laughs> right? You can look in here, you can hang a picture on the wall, and you can look for parallel or perpendicular lines, and most likely, you're going to hang something level. But not one of you, and I'm not going to do it either, is going to try to lay a foundation without having a survey and without having true level. Your house is going to be all wonky, right? So we can make something level without using a level, but not with any consistency. Because this is the case, church, we should remember that the ontology of level, I know, fancy word, the truth of what level actually is, is what God has truly established, okay? That's what God's wisdom is all about. This is how we can learn uh, from proverbial wisdom, 
proverbial means well-known or commonly referred to. This is how Solomon pulled from the ancient Near East. Uh, Solomon pulled from wise sayings that predated him by several hundred years, church. Before we move to the main focus, though, of David, I want to, um, I want to cover those two things that I talked about last week. The first is a thought about inspiration, and the second is seeing the Proverbs for what they are, which is Proverbs and not promises. This is tricky for some. Uh, our discussion last week about wisdom being primarily a compilation has a way of creating anxiety in people with regard to the doctrine of inspiration. So I want to calm that anxiety just ever so briefly, right? Here's how I'm calming that anxiety. As a church, here's what we believe. We believe that the scriptures are all equally and fully inspired by God. Amen? Can I get an amen? Anyway, okay, awesome. Uh, we believe that they are inerrant in their original writings concerning what they actually speak about. What that means is that the Bible doesn't tell us how to put Ikea furniture together. It's not supposed to. It never was intended for that, and you probably shouldn't use it for that, okay? And you shouldn't look for it there. That's really important. We believe that they, the, the words of the Bible are infallible in moral and spiritual teachings as being God-breathed and are God's complete and final authority for faith in life. Because they're his authority on faith in life, they probably tell you to stop buying furniture from Ikea. Anyway, you're going to go mad at some point, okay? So we also believe that they contain all things things necessary for salvation and practical instruction. If you want more information on what we believe as a church, you can find that on piercepoint.org. All of that said, we have to wrap our minds around the fact that the Bible didn't come in a trance-like spiritual download to individual writers. If you've believed that, if you have that idea in your head, please throw it away in the trash where it deserves to be. Some might ask, but what about dreams and visions, Nathan? I mean, don't we see people in the Bible have dreams and visions? Of course we do. We do. Uh, But we also see, primarily we see, uh, 66 books written by various authors that were penned by men, right? And each contribution maintains the character, maintains the voice, Uh, maintains the uniqueness of each writer. We see this in the four Gospels. They each communicate the exact same truth, and yet they don't do it in the same way. They're all unique. Why is that important? Let me tell you what the wisdom of God says about this. If we were today, in our hyper-skeptical culture, to find four books, four Gospels, that were written exactly the same, you know what the criticism would be? That's not four separately inspired things. It's just a bunch of people copying each other. They copied it verbatim, and here's how it works. Think about it, church. God even knows the criticisms that come. He knows what's happening, okay? And yet, through all of this time and all of these various authors, God is able to communicate the same consistent truth in a way that people can't get around. That's God, right? That's the God we serve. So it's an amazing, amazing idea. We also see in the book of Proverbs uh, that Solomon includes sayings from the ancient Near East, from wise men and sages of Israel, and he includes King Lemuel's mom, 
Okay, the words of King Lemuel's mom, such an important thing. Inspiration, although it does produce perfect and sufficient scripture, it is more akin to how a sunrise inspires an artist. It's akin to that. Please hear me. We are never meant to view it in some sort of mystical way or through some sort of mysticism. Uh, And in all of this, remembering that the source of inspiration is the most vital thing. The Bible's author's uh, inspiration was not the sun in the sky, but the maker of the sun in the sky, okay? And so he, he inspires them, he communicates to them, and they write things down. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20 and 21, it'll be on the screen. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. It does not say it is not the product of one person's writing. God didn't move their pen for them, <laughs> okay? This is really important. They wrote, these are, these are men writing down absolute truths of God, but it didn't come by one's own interpretation. Why is that important? The next verse. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. The prophecy was not made by the act of human will. Writing it down is not what the Bible is talking about here. But men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. It's this moving by the Holy Spirit that stirs us up, okay? The truth is that this moving came in various ways. As we discovered last week, it came to Solomon by way of his father's teaching, by the way of proverbial or common wisdom from the ancient Near East. It came in many other ways. The very nature of proverbial wisdom, and this is really a a death knell to this idea that we keep propping up. The very nature of proverbial wisdom, again, well-known or commonly referred to truths, speaks to God's gracious care for all humanity. James 4, 6 is a perfect example of this. James includes a quote right here uh, that we don't find anywhere in the Bible. It's not in the Old Testament. He's quoting something, and it's not actually in the Bible, and yet it's true. It's wise, right? Here's what James says again. 1 Peter 5, 5 says the exact same thing. But he gives greater grace, therefore it says. What is it? (laughs) What says this, James? What says this, Peter? We don't know, church. So what happens if we discover this on a piece of papyrus somewhere? Do we throw it away? No, we absolutely know it's true. Do we have to add it to the Bible? No, James did, (laughs) right? James has got this truth right here, but the idea is, it says, whatever it is, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The truth may be found in the Bible, but that phrase is not, and that's fascinating, and it should be something that you take into consideration. Okay, number two, I got to keep moving, church. Let's look briefly at this idea of Proverbs versus Promises. Uh, two passages. The first one, Proverbs 22.6, train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Sounds awesome, doesn't it? Come on, can I get an amen? That sounds awesome, doesn't it? Proverbs 16.3, commit your works to the Lord and your plans will be established. To view these Proverbs as promises instead of what they actually are, Proverbs, is to remove two non-negotiable ideas in life, okay? The first is the will of man, Proverbs 22, 6, and the second one is the discretionary will of God, Proverbs 16, 3. Follow with me. 
22.6, for parents, if we will train our children in a thing, that training should guide them even through to old age. It should guide them all the way up to old age. But what if they go astray like the prodigal? Are there prodigals in life? I've proved my point already, but I'll keep driving it home, right? Will they, stay, will they have a choice to make? Yeah, sure they will. They can submit to that training even when they're old. <laughs> right? Or they can stay neck deep in pig swaller, just like the prodigal found himself before. If the training was well done, was done faithfully and diligently, then the likelihood is greater that they will not depart from it. But this is still not a promise as we understand promises. It still doesn't work that way. Think about God as a father and we as his children. Does God train well? I need some audience participation. Does God train well, church? Yes, he does. Does everyone trust him in the end? Well, what the heck's happening? Does God's promises not work for him? The answer is that we're asking an irrelevant question. Because it's not a promise. God trains well. Men choose evil. Can I get an amen? Uh, Parents train well. And yet children choose evil. Every stinking day. (laughs) Right? It just happens. Now, just a brief aside here. If you train poorly, I'm going to punch somebody in the nose, I'm sure here. If you train poorly, remember this is what your child will take into their old age. If you train poorly... They will walk into old age with poor training. The Proverbs says, train up your child in the way he should go or she should go. And in the end, they will not depart from it. What's the antecedent of it? The training you provide. Right? Uh, Although training in righteousness is something that godly parents should do, all training is intended to serve your children. You should teach your children how to uh, manage their finances well. You really should. You should teach your children how to do a lot of things well. Because the Proverbs does not say, if you train up a child in King Jesus, in the end he won't depart from it. It says, if you train up a child in the way he should go, in the end he won't depart from it. Which is everything you trained him in, in this life. Church, you moms, dads, you are providing or establishing the curriculum for your children. It's your job. If it's done bad, don't be surprised at bad results. Sorry. (laughs) Okay? If it's done good, hear me clearly, apart from the will of your child, the result ought to be good. That's what Proverbs 22.6 says. Train up a child in the way they should go, and in the end, they won't depart. It is not... It is not to be understood. Drag your child to Sunday school every Sunday. In the end, they won't become an atheist. Not what the Bible says. Likewise, Proverbs 16.3 needs to be understood in light of the discretionary will of God. You and I can commit our ways to the Lord all we want, but unless it is his will in the end, church, unless our plans correspond with his, we should not be surprised when the answer is no. And I'm going to prove this in a really important way for you. In the Psalm 119 series... I told you that the petitionary prayer, that petitionary prayer is no simple activity. 
How many of you know we're, we're, we're always petitioning God, we're always asking God for things, but it's not a simple activity. Apart from God retaining some discretionary power uh, to grant or to refuse a petition in certain circumstances, prayer would be absolutely dangerous for us to wield. Why is that? Because I'd pray everybody on the street dead in one second right? This is what happens. You get mad, you, you lose your cool, you, you, do, you misstep somehow, and all of a sudden you're praying a discretionary prayer in the name of Jesus, right? And, and you're wishing everybody away. It just doesn't work that way. God has a, a will inside of all of this. So again, Proverbs 16.3 is not a promise like we think of promises. Here's another way of looking at it. Are there people in life whose plans are established even though they're evil? Every single day. Are there people whose plans are established, uh, who, uh, whose plans are not established, although they love the Lord with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength? Every single day. There are plans not established. Examples include the Apostle Paul wanting to go to Asia Minor, right, in the scripture. He has a plan, he submits it to the Lord. It's supposed to be established. God says, I'm not sending you there. Sorry. You're going to Macedonia. Smile. It's like going to Batavia. Anyway, okay. (laughs) Sorry. It's like made Bettina mad anyway. (laughs) Boo, what is that? You live in Owensville. What are you talking about? Anyway, okay. So this is not good, guys. I'm just, just dig a hole, Nathan. Okay. But it's also like... uh, the Apostle Paul being prevented from going to Thessalonica, isn't it, right? 1 Thessalonians chapter 2.18, look what the Bible says. For we wanted to come to you, established plan, set forth to God. We wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, and yet that dirty, rotten devil, right? The Satan is the right translation, right? The accuser hindered us. Well, I thought the established plans of a man before God are just done. You misread the Proverbs, or somebody taught you wrong. And here's what happens when we misread the Proverbs. We believe a lot of things to be promises, and they're not. And then we're disappointed when they don't come true. And then we act like God doesn't love us, God doesn't care for us, whatever it is. It's just not to be understood that way. Has God failed? Not at all. If we fail to understand the nature of proverbial wisdom, interpreting it as promissory, uh, we will find ourselves disappointed. But if we understand what, we're tru- what they truly are, it will give us a greater freedom and a deeper trust in God, a fuller trust in the story that he has and is uh, continuing to write. Although I could talk about these issues for hours, we have to move on. So, okay, let's go to Proverbs, or let's go to pride and humility. Thomas Aquinas wrote this. In order to overcome pride, God will punish certain men by allowing them to fall into sins of the flesh, which though actually are less grievous than pride itself, are outwardly more shameful. Now, I'm not trying to propose a ranking system to sin. Uh, and neither was Thomas Aquinas. The idea here is that pride seems to be at the root of sin, okay? And so in order to stop this issue, which God rejects fully, church, in order to stop this, it, uh, Thomas Aquinas asserts that God will allow us to enter into or allow us to um, 
embark on uh, lesser sins, if you will, and that they will humble us. For this indeed, he goes on, for this indeed, uh, from this indeed, the gravity of pride is made manifest. For just as a wise physician, in order to cure a worse disease, allows the patient to contract one that is less dangerous as a remedy, so that the sin of pride is shown to be more grievous, God allows some men to fall into other sins. It's pretty interesting. Uh, if God rejects the proud but gives grace to the humble, don't you think that he'll allow you to enter into foolishness and sinfulness that is lesser than so that you might be humbled so that he doesn't have to dispatch with you, right? So that he doesn't have to throw you out. Trust me, church, when the Bible says that God wants none to perish, he means it. He wants that none should perish. He wants to keep you. He wants to keep all of us. So he may let us do things. My dad used to always say that if you're reaching for a hot stove, I'm going to bust your rear end. Okay? And my kids are like, uh-oh. <laughs> Becca goes, stop. Anyway, so I'm going to bust your rear end. Why am I going to bust it? Because the pain of a whooping, and that's what they're called, whoopings. Anyway, the pain of a whooping is better than, I, I like the smile. Anyway, so the pain of a whooping is much better than the burn, the scar that lasts for a lifetime of the hot stove, right? Isn't that, isn't that true? So God seems to not want us to be scarred with pride and sent to hell. Instead, what he wants is to correct us. So he'll let us venture down that path. He'll let us go straight down that hole so that it'll humble us and bring us, uh, bring us to a place of, of clarity or lucidity. We should all recognize that pride can be a monstrous sin in our lives. I need an amen from everybody. Otherwise, you're just downright proud. Uh, it is one that is adept at hiding in the shadows. What God will do or allow to humble us can seem quite extreme, but we'll soon discover that it's always good. It's always good what God will allow us to do. As a matter of fact, this is yet another example of what God will use uh, as he works all things together for our good. When the Bible says God works all things, he literally means all things. Even your foolish sin. Even the things that you've gotten yourself into. I'm going to quote a big passage from Mere Christianity here from C.S. Lewis. Here's what Lewis wrote. I have heard people admit that they are bad-tempered or that they cannot keep their heads about girls or drink or even that they are cowards. I do not think I have ever heard anyone who was not a Christian accuse himself of this vice, this being pride. And at the same time, I have very seldom met anyone who was not a Christian who showed the slightest mercy to it in others. In other words... Nobody admits to having their own pride, and nobody has grace for other people's pride. There is no fault which makes a man more unpopular, and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more we have it ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. The vice that I'm talking about is pride or self-conceit, and the virtue opposite to it in Christian morals is called humility. According to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride, unchastity, anger, Greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. 
Lewis goes on. Does this seem to you exaggerated? I, point out a moment, I pointed out a moment ago that the more pride one had, the more one disliked pride in others. If you want to find out how proud you are, listen, church, if you want to fr- find out how proud you are, the easiest way is to ask yourself, how much do I dislike it when other people snub me? or refuse to take any notice of me, or shove their oar in, or patronize me, or show off. The point is that each person's pride is in competition with everyone else's pride. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they're not. Lewis concludes with this, they are proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good-looking... Life would be easier. There would be nothing to be proud about. It is the comparison that makes you proud. The pleasure of being above the rest. In the book of 2 Samuel, we're invited to observe how this truth played out during the darkest times, or one of the darkest times, of King David's life. This story is a journey from glory to pride, from tragic fall to humility, then eventually from humility back to glory. How many of you know that we are, be, we are being transitioned or moved from glory to glory, right? How many of you know that glory to glory sounds awesome, but the journey in between sucketh? Okay, so, okay, so it sounds amazing. It's just not so glorious along the way. Second Samuel 19, <laughs> that's King James English. Anyway, 2 Samuel 19.9 gives us a glimpse of the once great honor King David held in the eyes and the hearts of God's people. It was David who had delivered them from the hand of their enemy, the Philistines. This is David's doing, right? I mean, he is empowered by God. It was David who had been unlike any other ruler before him and especially unlike his predecessor, King Saul. It was David who was the man after God's heart. Sounds like a good dude, right? Let's pick up the story a little bit earlier. In chapter 8, coming off several triumphs, David was at the top of his game, as we like to say. And the defeat of the Philistines, the defeat of Moab, the defeat of Zobah, and others helped uh, help us to understand what 2 Samuel 8.15 meant when it said that David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and righteousness for all his people. What does it mean for him to administer justice and righteousness? He was a good judge. He heard their cases, that was fine, but it meant that he kept them safe. That's what David did. David reigned over all and he did well. He was beloved and favored by Israel, beloved and favored by God. He was a good leader and he kept people safe. Uh, Though he was favored by God, though his transition to kingship, of course, didn't come easy. It wasn't an easy road. Um, Even though the hardship of winning the kingdom was there, David stayed gracious and faithful. I hope you guys will study David's life. It is, it is a fantastic life. But 2 Samuel 9 shows us a picture of David's great love as he uh, sought out the house of Saul. And what he did was he cared for them by fulfilling a covenant to his best friend Jonathan. Uh, as Jonathan walks down the, the aisle. Anyway, that was pretty awesome. Anyway, so, so he fulfills this promise to his best friend, Right? And that, of course, led to Mephibosheth, which you can't say 10 times in a row without screwing it up. Uh, Jonathan's son, he lived in Jerusalem uh, regularly eating at his table. This is how you treat a best friend. This is how you care for one, right? You always are protecting them. You're always looking out for them. 
Okay, so in all of this, David was, though, as we are. David was as we are. He was a human being. His pride, like our own, was always lying in wait. Although it's hard to determine exactly where David went wrong, we should always be tracing the vectors to try to see this point for our own benefit. In chapter 7, we see uh, a king who was devoted fully to the Lord, a man eager to build the house of God. He wanted to build the house of God. And you know what God told him? No. You know why God told him no? Because he was a man of bloodshed. Told him no. Did David whine, kick and scream? Did he say God must have written me out of his will? Did, did he do what a modern day Christian does? Not at all. He just kept his head down. He knew that God had a plan. So, so David wants to do all these things. He wants, to, he wants to build a house for God. And God says no. He was a man whose name had been established by God, whose fame had been established by God. But in chapter 8, verse 13, it says, uh, we see a focus shift, and it says that David began to make a name for himself though all, uh, through all of his victories. Okay, Now that's an interesting phrase, because it seems like this is where David starts to make a shift. Even in making a name for himself, uh, David increases his fame and power, and God is still with him. I love this truth. On two separate occasions in that very same chapter, uh, the word of God says that the Lord helped David wherever he went. What does this mean, that God helped David even in his mess? It means that God doesn't leave us when pride rears up in our lives. Instead, what does he do, church? He disciplines us, just like my wife is doing my daughter right now. Instead, he stays by our side. He shapes us. How does he do this? Sometimes by cracking our rear end. Sometimes by doing what Thomas Aquinas said. God allows us to fall into lesser but outwardly more shameful sins so that it can expose our pride. And when we're exposed, we can and will be healed uh, and fixed through discipline. Remember Proverbs 15.33. The fear of the Lord is the instruction for wisdom. It's the instruction. God is going to instruct you. But before honor comes humility. Before honor comes humility. I think this is really just with us. The church has gotten off. I'm just going to go on a little bit of a tangent because I'm almost wrapped up. But the church has really missed the point when it comes to church discipline. Uh, on one end, they've missed the point because they don't practice it. Right? On one point, people don't even know that Matthew 18 exists. Okay. So that's a problem. Okay. Step one, you, you meet a brother or sister in sin, you go to them, you confront them about that sin, and you try to win them over. If you do win them over, I, I need you to track this with me. If you win them over, what happens? You celebrate. There's victory. Why? Because the MO of the Christian, the aim of the Christian life is restoration. The aim of the Christian life is not to set yourself up as the better Christian while those groveling idiots who can't get their sin under control all go find other churches. But that's what people do. So step one, you go and you try to restore them. If not, you go to step two. Step two is not grab a buddy so that you can pick on people. Step two is you share the case with somebody. And they use wisdom and discernment to find out whether or not you're off your rocker. Or whether or not you're accurate in your assessment. And hopefully they're a person who knows knows the sin or knows the issue. And then you go to them because there's power in that. 
And the scripture tells us that in the power of two or more, that a thing is established. That's where a judgment comes. By the way, that great passage, I've shared this a thousand times. I'm going to share it a thousand more until people quit misquoting it. But the scripture says, where two or more are gathered, there I am in your midst. The Bible is not saying that as long as two people are gathered together, you can have church. Where two or more gathered is directly after Matthew 18's church discipline, which means where two or more are gathered, justice is established. That's all it means. It's all it ever will mean. Stop misquoting it, <laughs> right? You, don't, you, can have, you can have the Spirit of God in you while you're in your bathroom by yourself, okay? But you ain't having church until the church assembles together, okay? This is really, really big. Okay, so tangent continues. So we've got two, step two of our church discipline. Stop laughing at me, Sean. I don't need that this morning. Anyway, so step two of church discipline. Then there's step three of church discipline. How many of you know what step three actually says? It says that you're supposed to take this before the church. Now, what have we done? We've said you should brand somebody with a scarlet letter. You should walk them the walk of shame, however long the aisle of the church is, right? You should stand them in front of the congregation, and then you should, like, hit them or something. I don't even, it's really weird the way we do church discipline. Uh, bringing them before the church does not imply this setting. It could be the setting of the elders of a church because they were and are intended to be the judges of the church. That's their job, okay? So that can be what it is. There is a point at which there is an excommunication. That's actually the Latin term, excommunicado, in that. And there is a time for that. There is a time for that. But do you know what, to what end that is for? So that shame and so that guilt and brokenness will have its perfect work so that they'll come back so that God continues to have his children. Do you understand that? You understand that? There's churches out there that just brag about their amazing ability to kick people out of their church because they follow Matthew 18. If you're watching, you stupid right? This is, this is weird, church. This is weird. The objective is not throw people out so that they can take their dysfunction to another pastor down the road. He doesn't need that problem either, right? What they need is restoration. What I've needed in my life is restoration. What others have needed in their life is restoration, not destruction, not condemnation, how is it that the Bible can say there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and yet everyone feels like they're condemned in the church? What are we screwing up here? What have we done wrong? A lot. It doesn't, where are we at? Does that mean we don't take sin seriously? Not at all. We take it very seriously. We deal with sin. If you're walking in sin, we say knock it the heck off, right? Okay, we walk in repentance. That's our objective, okay? The scripture says that if you find your brother is in a sin or he sins against you and he repents seven times a day, you know how often you're supposed to forgive him? Seven times in the day, right? And if it's eight, do it again, <laughs> right? The objective of the Christian life is a, is a continual walking in repentance, not flawless perfection, even though I do believe that you can say no to sin. It's just my view of it. 
We need to get this back because restoration is the objective. And why did I go on that little tangent? Because God will allow us to walk in sins so that our sin exposes us and it exposes our pride so that we can be corrected, we can be humbled, and then we can be restored and walk after him purely. It's the objective. It always has been. So where is David's pride landing at this point? Well, let's look. Remember what C.S. Lewis said, our pride can be evidenced in how much we dislike being snubbed, right? How many of you love it? I love being snubbed. I love being overlooked. Nobody likes that, right? In chapter 10, we see this vividly play out in David's life. He's snubbed by a man named Hanan, and uh, he's the new king of Ammon. And Hanan publicly shames a delegation that David had sent, and David sent this delegation actually in friendship and peace and good faith. Why did Hanan do this? Maybe because he was a new king. Maybe he had very little wisdom himself. Uh, Maybe because he listened to bad advisors. We don't really know what happened concerning Hanan, but we're concerned with David, right? And David, uh, any way we shake it, uh, David seems to change his gracious response character, okay? Instead, David, instead of being gracious... Uh, mind you, the, the delegation was sent away with half their beard shaved off and um, uh, their kilts removed. <laughs> so you can get the picture all on your own. Anyway, so instead we see, on, uh, we see David on a warpath. What's the warpath David goes on? Well, he kills 700 charioteers and 40,000 horsemen. This is slightly bigger than road rage, okay? So that's a big deal, right? It's straight from that devastating story, though, uh, that, uh, that devastating victory, honestly, uh, that we turn the page to chapter 11 and the story begins to unfold further as we witness David's great sin. The outward shame of this act has reverberated across generations. Thousands of years we have, we have understood this. We see David's covetousness. We see him taking Bathsheba. We see him plan the murder of Uriah, her husband. At this point, David was in a place of pride, which Lewis warned us of. Again, the words of Lewis. This is no fault which, are, uh, which we are more unconscious. There is no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more we have it in ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. Did David dislike the sin he was walking in? I'll prove that he did. Here's what happened. David David hated this sin when it came to others. It outraged him. Nathan the prophet comes to him and he says to David in chapter 12, he tells the story of a poor man, of a much-loved little lamb, right? This poor man had a little lamb. And then a rich tyrant who stole that man's lamb and killed it. David reacts with fierce anger. 40,000 charioteers and 700,000 horsemen kind of fierce anger, right? David, who had been prideful and calloused, who told Joab when it came to committing this sin of having Uriah die or get killed, he, he, he is callous in his pride, tells Joab not to worry about Uriah's death. It's not just premeditated. It's cold-hearted what David is doing. And he exclaims that the rich tyrant who sacrifices a lamb that was a prized possession of a man needs to die for killing a lamb. He's blind though, right? David's blind, not to morality. Please take consideration here. He's not blind to what is right and wrong. David knows it. He's just blind to his right and wrong. 
He's blind because pride had taken over his life. Blind to the sin that was within him. At this point in David's life, he was exactly what Jesus' brother James describes in James chapter 1, verse 23 and 24. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of a person he was. David looks in the mirror, he sees exactly what's wrong. He walks away, he forgets that he's got the problem. When Nathan confronts David with the reality that David himself is the rich tyrant, well, he went on to say something interesting. Nathan tells David, he said, God has provided everything for you. If you had just asked him, he would have given you what you lacked, given you what you wanted. Now, that's not to understand that he would have given Uriah to death or given Bathsheba necessarily. It's that he would have taken care of David. But David didn't ask. David didn't go to the Lord in prayer. And here we see the true manifestation of pride. David had taken his life into his own hands. David took his life into his own hands instead of relying on God who had established and taken care of him. I would argue, church, that one of the greatest reasons why you should pray, one of the greatest reasons why you should tarry with the Lord and go to him is so that you stop trying to control every part of your life. I'm awful at this. But you're supposed to take it to the Lord. You're supposed to take it to the Lord. And David didn't, and that was his pride. He had taken what he wanted instead of walking in humility before God. And now he gets humbled. The next long haul of the story is one of the darkest periods in David's life. Though David repented from the tragic fall and begins to grow in humility, it, w- it wouldn't be long. Um, uh, it would be a long road back to glory. And along that way, uh, he would find himself betrayed. He'd find himself hurt over and over. Remember this, church. Proverbs 16, 5. Everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Assuredly, he will not go unpunished. For those in Christ Jesus, this is not a condemnation, but rather a chastisement. This is a molding, this is a shaping, which is the love of the Lord. This moment of pride's exposure and repentance to God is a true milestone in David's life. It takes 40 years to to get to, but from this point on, we see a man governed by humility. It's not a man who doesn't sin any longer, right? It's not a man who doesn't slip back into pride. As a matter of fact, in just a few chapters, David's going to take a census right when God tells him not to. And that census was designed for David to know how big he was, how big his army was, and not to trust God. What God wants is a man or a woman who quickly repents. Though David was now back on course, the 40-year road uh, ahead of him was littered with ramifications of that sin. He lost a son. He's betrayed by a son. He goes through a true valley of the shadow of death, but God was always walking beside him. Uh, he, wouldn't be, uh, he wouldn't become the picture, uh, he would become the picture of Proverbs chapter 11, verse 2. When pride comes, then comes dishonor, but with the humble is wisdom, right? Pride came, dishonor befell David. With humility came wisdom. So here's how we wrap it up. Next week, we're going to pick back up on the story, but this time we're going to follow David's son Absalom and a bunch of weird, twisted stories that go on there. If you like stories about uh, 
attractive men, big hair, and death. It's a great story for you. Anyway, uh, we're going to see what happens when a person refuses to be humbled. (laughs) It's the greatest sermon sales pitch you've ever heard in your life. Anyway, we're going to see what happens when a person refuses to be humbled. And I hope you'll hang in with me as pride and humility are issues of great consequence. Let me, let me conclude with these few verses here. Proverbs 18, 12. Before destruction, the heart of man is haughty, but humility goes before honor. You want to get from glory to glory? It comes through humility. It will never come any other way. Proverbs 22, 4. The reward of humility and the fear of the Lord are riches, honor, and life. Notice that the reward of humility and the fear of the Lord are not humility and the fear of the Lord. The reward of humility and the fear of the Lord are actually riches, honor, and life. You know what David, you know what Solomon asked for when God said, what do you want? He said, I want wisdom. How does wisdom come? The fear of the Lord. With the fear of the Lord came what for Solomon? Riches, honor, and life. Uh, But we should never forget the proverbial wisdom of James and 1 Peter 5. But he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And you younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders. And all y'all clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The Proverbs are clear. Pride is bad. Pride will destroy you, church. God rejects it, but he will humble you, or we can humble ourselves. And I have no idea how to communicate how hard that is. But if you will, God loves you. He will restore you. He will care for you. Amen, church.